most of us have virtually no idea of the behind the scenes shenanigans that control the food you purchase at your local grocery store. Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Phil Howard, who studies food system changes with an emphasis on visualizing these trends. His work has been featured in many prominent media outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, Chicago Trip, and he's associate professor at the Department of Community Science, I'm sorry, the Department of Community Sustainability at Michigan State University, and he holds a PhD in rural sociology from the University of Missouri. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Phil. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So uh, you wrote a a really interesting book to help the average individual understand what goes on behind the scenes. I mean, they may have some idea, but they don't, I suspect almost everyone has no understanding of the depth of the corruption, the conflict, the conflicted relationship or some partnerships and the, the hidden schemes that are going on to essentially control and monopolize the food system. So what uh, motivated you to explore this area and actually write a book about it? Oh, actually, well, the, name, the name of your book, why don't you give us the name of your book? Yeah, the name of the book is called Concentration and Power in the Food System, Who Controls What We Eat? Okay, so which is a pretty good summary of what the book's about. Yeah, and the motivation, as you uh, discussed, is uh, these trends are really hidden from us. So uh, my motivation was to kind of uncover what's going on to help people understand who owns what and all the strategies these dominant firms use to further increase their power. So it seems that there's just a few firms that end up controlling the entire world food system from the supermarket shelves to the seeds. And we know that's certainly the case with Monsanto. Uh, and the end game appears to be global monopoly. And there's a few elite individuals and corporations who seem to benefit from these trends, which would suggest that the answer is something like the, the Borg administration, that uh, resistance is futile. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that and uh, give us your perspective. Yeah, the trend in most industries is for fewer and fewer firms to increase their power. Uh, one really dramatic example is the beer industry. Um, four firms headquartered in Europe brew about half the world's beer, and that's going to go down to three very soon because Anheuser-Busch InBev is acquiring SAB Miller. So even if you're a very dominant firm, you're caught up in this system where you have to yourself get bigger or become acquired by your big competitors. But it's resulting in um, you know, just less and less people making decisions about the food we eat. Uh, there's even speculation that uh, InBev is not increasing its sales enough, even with this acquisition. So they're going to have to acquire a big soft drink firm, perhaps even Coke <laughs> or Pepsi. <laughs> is InBev that big where they can acquire the most recognized brand in the world, Coca-Cola? Yeah, they're one of the three largest food firms in the world now with this SAB Miller acquisition. And, uh, you know, that deal alone was $103 billion. Wow. Yeah, that's when they bought uh, Anheuser-Busch, which is, I believe, the producer of Budweiser, which is one of the most common uh, beers and certainly notorious or for their Super Bowl commercials, which usually wind up winning the awards. Uh, so it, they're owned by InBev now. They're going to purchase Miller. So that's almost all the beers going to be owned by European companies. Is, is that a safe summary? <laughs> yeah, in most parts of the world. In the U.S., they had a joint venture partner, Molson Coors. Mm -hmm. So all the Miller brands are going to be handed off to Miller uh, Molson Coors. Uh, but in many parts of the world, they are, they're already a monopoly, um, something like 80% plus of sales in many parts of Africa and Latin America. So there were rules and regulations uh, enacted by the federal government some time ago to prevent this type of monopoly. And in fact, when large corporations uh, tend to buy other large corporations, there's a, a rigorous evaluation process that is required before they're allowed and authorized to, to merge. So I'm wondering uh, what's going on here. Are they have been able to manipulate, uh, no surprise, the federal regulatory agencies 
to the detriment of the, the population? Yeah, definitely. In the 19, early 1900s, there were a number of laws passed to prevent these trusts and, and these combinations that uh, resulted in, in you know, monopolies in these markets. Uh, that changed pretty dramatically beginning in the 1980s. Reagan was elected. He directed the heads of federal agencies to take a very different view towards mergers and acquisitions. And at the same time, federal judges were being indoctrinated into the Chicago School of Economics. Uh, they got paid to go on these junkets to Arizona, Florida, places like that. They played golf, and then they uh, attended these seminars where they were taught um, mergers and acquisitions, unless they immediately raised prices for consumers, uh, were, were good for everyone. So as a result, you know, just one of those programs by the early 90s, two-thirds of federal judges had participated. So it's essentially impossible to win an antitrust case in the federal courts now. Yeah, it sounds like the process that uh, was and is still going on with the, the health industry and the drug companies uh, courting physicians and, more importantly, physician influencers, which are usually department chairs and uh, physicians who are in charge or uh, serve on regulatory committees, essentially the thought leaders, and uh, they provide similar bribing situations and they ostensibly uh, purpose the contributions as a speaking fee or you know some other way around it, or they'll don donate it to the university that they're employed by, and then the university funds them directly so they can bypass any regulatories. But it's regulatory uh, regulations that are already in process, but it's just really sad to see this occur because it just benefits these big companies and really at the expense of the population at large. Yeah, it just further reinforces their power. And they, as they get bigger, they have even more political influence. They serve on more you know, federal advisory committees. Um, and it's happening at the global level, too, with these, these global trade agreements. Um, some of these, these deals are kept secret from Congress, uh, but executives from these large firms are right there at the negotiations. So when you have these large companies uh, and that have essentially been able to radically influence the federal regulatory agencies that are uh, really uh, designed or chartered to, to regulate them, they're able to circumvent that regulatory process and essentially form a cartel. So you should expand on that a bit. Yeah, there's some uh, radical historians who think, you know, that actually occurred with with the, this antitrust legislation in the early 1900s. It actually kind of took away public pressure to to just get rid of these big corporations altogether, uh, moved everything into this legal technical arena. And in some industries, it actually kept them, um, you know, dominated by big corporations rather than allowing more competition. Uh, but there are more and more industries that have um, become more and more like these cartels. So a good example is the seed industry. Uh, it was taken over by big chemical companies beginning in the 1980s. Uh, we got down to just six firms. Um, previously, there were over 30 firms. And these big six chemical companies that are also seed companies have cross-licensing agreements for genetically engineered technologies. So uh, the commodity farmers that want these genetically engineered traits like uh, herbicide resistance they have to, um, you know, the independent seed companies cannot access those technologies. So they either become acquired by these firms or end up going out of business. Yeah, it's a sad scenario for sure. And we've done many stories on uh, the Monsanto challenges. And uh, they, through uh, this massive public exposure, have been able to obtain the moniker of probably the one of the most evil and hated companies in the world. And they're really quite aware of that. They've been around for over 100 years, uh, did some interesting work on the Manhattan Project and were involved with the construction of the, of the atomic bomb. And uh, at that time, I believe they really deepened their tentacles into the federal regulatory agencies. And now it's virtually impossible to control them through any federal intervention. It's just they have so effectively secured that there's just no way that there's any federal regulatory action that can happen from them. But in, interestingly, and maybe you can comment on this, I believe, because I, I, I don't recall the current state, I think they were bought out by Bayer 
Uh, and I don't know if that merger was approved or not, but you know they're certainly going to get rid of the Monsanto name and, and give it some more uh, pleasant sounding, euphemistically beneficial uh, term to, to hide their past evil sins. And, even, and Bear is no saint either. If you dive deep into them, that was the company that supplied the, the, um, the gas to kill many of the millions of people in Nazi Germany. So, and I forget that their pre previous name of Bear, you would probably um, just don't recall their name, but it, it changed it to Bear. But uh, they're they're no saint either. Yeah, there's uh, right now. It's possible that those big six will be reduced to just three. Um, BASF also in Germany uh, has really gotten out of the seed sales. Uh, but Bayer is trying to acquire Monsanto, Dow and DuPont are planning to merge. And I think that's that was approved by all the big governments. So it's just some smaller governments waiting on that one. Big surprise. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, ChemChina, a Chinese-owned uh, chemical company, is acquiring Syngenta. So, Oh, Syngenta, I think, was the one that wanted to buy Monsanto, but they got turned down. I don't know what happened there. I thought it was Syngenta. Yeah, uh, actually, Monsanto, as a survival strategy, was trying to acquire Syngenta, but they okay, were, that was they were it. I had it reversed. Okay. So, so you think it lo looks like Bear is going to be able to buy Monsanto? Yeah, I suspect all three of those deals will go through. Although investors are are most, um, you know, they're kind of fifty fifty on Bear acquiring Monsanto right now. Um, they wouldn't be surprised if. Some governments opposed it, but it looks like most of them are going to allow it with just some minor concessions, like selling off some seed or chemical divisions. So, you know, in your book, you really dive deep into the whole supply chain of how the food arrives on our tables, you know, from the seeds which we just discussed, to the farming, to the processing, to the distribution. But let's go to the next step after seeds, which is farming. And I don't know as a percentage what the number of farmers were in the country at, uh, in, in the early, early 1930s, but you mentioned there's nearly was nearly 10 million or 8. Uh, 6.8 million, I'm sorry, 6.8 million in 1937. But we had a lot less people. I believe there was right. under 100 million people. So as a percentage, it might have been 5, 10% of the population. And now we're down to 2 million and we have more than 350 million. So that is way less than 1%. So a reduction of probably 90% or so. So why don't you comment on that? And, you know, I think Earl Butts in the Nixon administration was, was popularized as saying, get big or get out or something similar to that, which certainly didn't help or contributed to the demise of the small farmer. Yeah, that's been an ongoing trend. And it's even worse if you look at, uh, probably two thirds of the sales of farm commodities in the US come from just 100,000 farms. So although technically there are 2 million farmers, uh, most of the growth in farms is occurring from, you know, very small hobby farmers, people who have retired. Uh, but the, the middle scale farms and the big farms are just getting bigger and bigger. Uh, and those, those that um, you know, can't make it are, are going out of business. And uh, there have been a lot of factors, including uh, U.S. government subsidies. Um, you know, about 85% of federal subsidies go to the top 10% of farms. So this just reinforces their advantages. Um, so they end up buying out uh, neighboring farms. And, um, you know, we had this, tr this treadmill effect where um, e even the biggest farms feel like they have to get bigger or they will go out of business. So <clears throat> we talk about a lot of many topics on our site and uh, there are lar large level numbers of different factors that contribute to health. And one of the, many of them contribute to depression and anxiety. And before we go on any further, you know, it, it basically everything we've been saying has been pretty much depressing <laughs> statistics. You know, like I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to have someone go out and take a gun and like shoot themselves before they finish listening to this. So is there anything positive that we can take out of this? I mean, there's definitely we have there are some a very clear and real concerns about our food distribution system. But before we go into the actual manufacturing and processing, there's so many great examples in your book. 
let's give people some hope that it's not, even though it's pretty depressing, there are some strategies that can be done. So what would you suggest that we uh, embrace as to counter all the negative statements we've just reviewed? Well, there are a lot of efforts to resist these trends. And uh, one of my favorite examples is to come back to beer, because although I mentioned uh, the big firms are getting bigger, they're, they're doing that because they have no other way to grow. Uh, you know, beer sales in the U.S. are really leveled off except for the craft brew segment. So uh, we've had this dramatic increase in the number of breweries in the U.S., um, thousands and thousands now. Uh, their percentage of sales has, um, you know, it's well over 10%. So, uh, I mean, if you just look at the beer aisle in your supermarket, there's a lot more choice than there was 10 or definitely 20 years These ago. These are the microbreweries? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, one response, the big brewers have tried to, just in the last few years, sort of buying up some of those craft breweries. But, uh, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. People are have moved away from those, um, you know, macro brews. Um, they're not increasing their sales at all. That's why they're having to look at other parts of the world for growth. Uh, but there are many examples like beer in other parts of the food system. Um, you know, heritage breed turkeys, for example. Uh, the numbers of have gone way up, even though uh, in 1990, in the you know 2000s, there were just um, you know less than 2,000 turkeys in the entire U.S. that weren't uh, broad-breasted white. Hmm. So people so, are creating more and more of these alternatives, and uh, it's just hard to find them and support them. Yeah, and one of the strategies, and you don't discuss this in the book, but it's obvious and clear, is that you can become your own farmer. Now, I know not everyone can do it, and if you live in a, de- in a densely urban area and you have an apartment or you have no land, then you know it's going to be more challenging. But it doesn't mean it's impossible because community gardens do exist and you can participate in those. But you know, why don't you comment on some of the strategies people can take on growing their own food? I know I consume about 50% of my food is stuff that I grow right on my home, in my home or around my home. Yeah, definitely. Even if you have no space, you can grow some sprouts, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and just become a little bit self-sufficient in that way. Um, you know, if you don't have any space at all to even have a container garden on your patio, uh, then you can make connections with local farmers. Um, there are more and more um, community-supported agriculture farms and um, cooperatives where farmers can come together at a drop-off point once a month and buying clubs. And uh, you know, it's really encouraging to see that people are really fed up with the, the industrial food system and are, are finding all these alternatives and, and you're creating more spaces for them to thrive. Well, good. And let's now touch on the uh, some of the brands that uh, you know particularly revealing. Some of people may know this, but you discuss some really interesting examples in the book. Uh, let's go to I think the Stonyfield Farm for which is or the no the Silk Yogurt or the Silk not yogurt uh, Silk. Soy milk. Yeah, the soy milk, which, you know, let's be straight up front and you may share my assessment, but I don't think that any human healthy human being should be drinking soy milk. It is not a healthy beverage uh, for a variety of reasons. One of the primary ones being the lectin content of that. And most of it is not GMO, but even if it was GMO, I'd still disagree with the use of soy. But nevertheless, the person who started this really did a good thing. He created quite a market with this silk brand and really dominated the effect. And I think had good intentions. He sincerely believed that it was a healthy product, which is why he was producing it. He wasn't doing being deceptive. And there are many people who agreed with him and purchased the product. Uh, so this is a really good illustration. I want to go into a few more, too, that really a powerful example of what's happening behind the scenes that most of us aren't aware of. Yeah, this was Steve uh, Demos who created um, White Wave. Uh, He developed silk soy milk and he was a real idealist, wanted to increase consumption of soy products in the U.S. And a number of his attempts at tofu and soy ice cream, for example, failed. But when he had the idea to move... um, soy milk into the refrigerator case right right next to cow's milk, uh, sales really took off. 
but one of the limitations he faced was breaking into conventional supermarkets because they charge slotting fees, mm-hmm. uh, which you know are billions of dollars per year just to get one product into a regional supermarket chain might cost tens of thousands of dollars. So the way he was able to you know, implement his vision was he went to big firms like Coca-Cola. Uh, ultimately, he got some funding from uh, a, a dairy processor called Dean. So they were able to pay all these slotting fees, getting, get into the supermarkets, and they, they began to dominate sales, growing exponentially. Uh, you know, they, just this one brand had over three quarters of sales at one point. Um, but that Which came is pretty much cost. a monopoly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the cost to, to Steve DeMoss was that uh, he lost control of his company by taking on these investors' firms. Um, uh, Dean actually acquired 100% of the company, and uh, he tried to block it but was unsuccessful. And in a very short period of time, he was thrown out of the company. And then, not surprisingly, uh, Dean Foods reduced its commitment to organic ingredients Um you know, and they reduced his commitment to sourcing North American soybeans, started sourcing soybeans from China and Brazil, for example. Um, so they've went from a 100% organic firm to maybe 6% today. Yeah, I love that story because such a powerful illustration of what's going wrong with the system. And I suspect many people are familiar with, with the, the slotting fees you mentioned, but perhaps you can expand on that because that seems to be the major barrier for these small players. And it's interesting. Uh, I, I am wondering, you know, how pervasive that is, because if it was, that would be a strong argument against the success of these microbreweries that are being sold, because if there were significant slotting fees, they couldn't get their product in there. So, I mean, are there some products that are really strong and rich in us and others that are more flexible? But why don't you discuss these slotting fees? Because they're, they're a really central role that's part of the whole problem. Yeah, unfortunately, it's tough to know much about them because they're so secretive. Um, there's so many... Um, you know, complications to it. The Federal Trade Commission held a hearing uh, nearly two decades ago on this topic, and people testified, you know, um, with with um, hoods to disguise their identities. And ultimately, the government was able to find out very little about this, uh, <laughs> just that it's happening. Um, and it differs by the product. So in beer, um, many, many supermarkets simply let the large uh, suppliers stock the shelves and, and the store uh, staff don't even uh, stock those shelves. Um, but, it, it, you know, some of these slotting fees uh, in the bag salad industry, we know a little bit more about that. Um, it's, it's kind of steered uh, many of these bag salad firms to um, go to the private label route. So they're producing the same product, but putting a, a retailer name on it because that way they can avoid the what, slotting fees. What was the big company there with those, the, that there was one one predominant um, company? Yeah, in the organic space, it was Earthbound. Earthbound, so, that was it, yes. Yeah, like White Wave, they controlled over three quarters of sales for many years. And like White Wave, they were acquired by um, a spinoff of Dean Foods. So White Wave. <laughs> Same company, imagine that. <laughs> yeah, so White Wave has actually become the biggest organic food company in the U.S., um, but it's in the process of being acquired by an even larger firm, uh, Dana and the French Yogurt Company. Oh, gosh. So the, the, the one concession that the U.S. government required is that the Stonyfield um, is going to be sold to another firm, and it could be a Mexican or a Chinese firm that acquires Stonyfield. Let's go to Stonyfield. That was the... Uh, and I definitely want to go into, I think, Organic Valley. I think, believe that still runs into the whole process. It's, it's, we're, we're bought, folks, what we're doing here is painting this pattern to make you aware of that these founders, these idealistic, altruistic, well-intentioned human beings start these companies to provide a, a phenomenally incredible product. But because they, they seek to grow it and there's these intrinsic complications of selling and distribution, they almost always, it seems, invariably get bastardized and, and revert back to this corporate structure that essentially devastates the quality of the food. So, so why don't we go into the, uh, the, the uh, what was it, the Stonyfield is where we left off. What's happening? Yeah, Stony, Stonyfield was an interesting case because Gary Hirschberg, the founder, um, 
you know, he had to pay off all his investors, his friends and family that, uh, you know, helped him create this firm. And he also wanted to uh, make those products available to more consumers. So he spent a long time negotiating a buyout uh, with, with, um, with Dana and the French yogurt company. Um, but, you know, the, it's contingent on um, increasing sales. So they've had to, you know, water down some of that, their ideals, like their commitment to organic over the years in order to increase sales. Uh, and now they're very vulnerable. They could end up becoming part of a, you know, another, a foreign firm. Uh, but there are um, other, you know, to, to stay a little bit positive, there are firms that have resisted tremendous buyout offers. Well, let's um, go into some of those. People, yeah, uh, people, there are certain individuals who have integrity and commitment to their ideals and aren't sacrificing it for more revenue. Yeah, but you also got to think they're a little bit uh, crazy to try and compete <laughs> against these these transnational corporations. Uh, I mean, they are really idealistic to turn down tens of millions of dollars and then well, go up. Well, wait, wait. Them. In some cases, it's hundreds of millions. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, one example is Cliff Bar. So Gary Erickson has has told the story in a book called Raising the Bar. He walked away from sixty million dollars at the last minute uh, after negotiating a deal uh, to be acquired by uh, Quaker Oats, a division of Pepsi, because um, he saw that many of the promises early in the negotiations were uh, kept being pulled back, and he didn't have any confidence that they would, you know, be able to maintain the commitment to his ideals. So. They're still independent, uh, you know, still giving money to, um, you know, a lot of a lot of worthy causes. Um, but there are others like Equal Exchange, you know, they saw, um, you know, were very far-sighted and saw what could happen with the buyouts. So uh, they're cooperative. The workers um, run the company. Decided if they're ever sold, none of the proceeds would go to the workers. It would have to go to another fair trade organization. Now, as we're recording this interview, uh, it is essentially four days post Amazon purchase of Whole Foods at, at $13.8 billion. And I'm sure by the time this interview gets aired, there'll be much more commentary on it. But I'm wondering if you have, considering your vast depth of knowledge of this space, if you have any views on that purchase. Yeah, it's really not surprising. Um you know, because Whole Foods became publicly traded after making dozens and dozens of acquisitions over the years, they became very vulnerable to um, pressure from investors who want them to increase sales every quarter uh, with no concern for long-term growth and obviously no concern for ideals. So uh, they were not increasing sales fast enough. And I think their sales were decreasing, weren't they, for the last four quarters? Yeah, yeah. Even though the the sales per square foot in their store are like the highest in the industry, um, you know, by what investors are looking for, which is you know increasing power in the future, uh, they were vulnerable, and it's not surprising that they weren't. So they they were basically forcing a sale, and uh, somebody like Kroger, uh, who's already in brick and mortar, wouldn't really gain much by buying Whole Foods. Yet, you know, see companies like Kroger acquiring online retailers like Vitacost and mm-hmm. Walmart acquiring Jet. So Walmart acquired who now? Uh, Jet.com. Oh, Jet.com. Okay, that was a, another distribution company similar to Amazon. Uh, yeah, an online retailer. Right. So um, it's not surprising that Amazon was really the only option for Whole Foods. Um, and it really... Um, gives Whole Foods some space to look longer term uh, and not just be so focused on the quarterly returns right now. Uh, you know, so from Amazon's perspective, it gives them brick and mortar uh, access to those affluent consumers who shop at Whole Foods and uh, like that brand image. Why do you think Amazon, which is obviously a public traded company and the owner or the founder would be the more correct, because I don't. He certainly doesn't own a majority stake in the company anymore. But he's the second wealthiest person in the world at least this time, and projected to be the number one at some point, especially with acquisitions like Whole Foods. So why? I mean, obviously a big company. Why do you think that they were not as uh, under the gun as other companies like Whole Foods for these for these returns? Because I mean, Amazon gets extraordinarily terrible returns on. I mean, it's a tens, hundreds of, I don't know what their equity is worth, but it's it's probably hundreds of billions. And they're like making millions of dollars of profit a quarter. I mean, it's just like, 
micro cents on the dollar. <laughs> so, I mean, how do they get away with that and continue to grow? Yeah, that's and, a good and, question. And how are they not vulnerable to these same investor pressures? Yeah, it's really amazing that uh, Amazon was able to fend off similar pressures that was that, that were facing Whole Foods. Um, they were constantly uh, being criticized by Wall Street investors for not dramatically, um, you know, not having profits that increased every quarter. They just kept plowing those profits back into growing and expanding into new areas and becoming one of the biggest conglomerates in the world. Um, so I don't know what happened behind the scenes to fend off those those mm -hmm. investors, but um, you know, they had the the longer term vision. Um, which enabled them to have, so the investors right now, their view is all about future growth. You're right. Their profits right now. Yeah. So it's just a different pool of investors, do you think? Because if, obviously Amazon has proven that you can commit to the long term. Uh, Whole Foods has proven, and all these other companies, you know, we're short-sighted companies and even these big multinational corporations like the beverage companies you mentioned earlier, just don't get it. I mean, they're just focused on this continually increased quarterly profits, this which is the massive emphasis. So, I mean, it's possible. I mean, Amazon's the the the, cl the classic example that you can do it. Yeah, I think it's probably an easier sell that technology when there's there's so much innovation versus the food industry. Uh, there tends to be a lot less innovation. The food industry uh, sales don't have the, the potential to increase because the size of our stomachs is limited. Uh, that, makes, that makes sense, yeah. So you gotta have some novel new uh, approach that gives investors hope that there could be this radical increase on the return because that's what they're looking for. And it's not to, to bash or uh, berate the investors. I mean, that's where they're investors. They want to increase their, their being a wise steward of their resources. So, uh, but uh, you know, it would be <laughs> nice if they could invest for the long term. So let's get back to some of these other examples. Uh, another intriguing one you bring up in the book is Eden Foods, which had really held a high standard, so high in fact that they refused to put the organic label on their food, even though it was because they thought that the organic label was bastardized. So can you comment on the, the Eden Foods scenario? Yeah, they're a firm that's, that's had a commitment to sourcing from local suppliers, um, you know, putting minimal um, ingredient, you know, not putting a lot of synthetic uh, processing aids, like they were opposed to uh, the watering down of organic processing standards to allow synthetics. Um, so they, they still don't put the USDA organic label on their products. Um, you know, they were pretty fortunate. They've been around so long since the seventies that, uh, you know, that integrity is well known to to a certain number of consumers, um, they're able to, they were able to get into a distribution system. Um, it's very likely if they were trying to start out today, they would never make it. Um, yeah. these, these more established brands that have been able to survive. And a large part is a result of these uh, mysterious slotting fees that even the federal government is unable to, to find out the details of, <laughs> despite having hooded witnesses. Uh, so, Let's talk a little bit about, are there any other companies that you could provide as an illustration, either good or bad, that, you know, that the average person watching this may not be aware of? Yeah, it's unfortunate that more people don't know which companies are independent. Uh, there are companies like Nature's Path and Bob's Red Mill. Uh, Bob actually hired someone specifically to fend off buyout offers. They would just tell people who inquired no and they never even told Bob the amounts that he was being offered for that company, which wise um, approach. <laughs> Good job, Bob. Yeah. So Bob's Red Bill and Cliff Bar are um, have, have gone to an employee stock ownership program uh, rather than to just sell out to the highest bidder. Okay. Good. So. Uh, let's talk about California. And this actually occurs in third world countries too. And I can think of one example in Mexico where I visited uh, uh, near the uh, the central Mexico. Um, and the name escapes me, but it was a big issue. And it was stimulated by the, the beverage companies who were seeking to supply, get a source of water. I think it was probably Coca-Cola and they drained the water table. But in California, Agri and that's California is one of our most important agricultural states, but yet it's still only is it resp uh, responsible for about 2% of the economy. 
yet they're uh, consuming 80% of the water in California, largely a result of industrial farming practice, conventional farming, which is just destroying the topsoil, decreasing the nutrient density of the foods, uh, using these artificial synthetic fertilizers, which is further decimating the, the important microbes in the foods. And, and uh, you know, it's, why don't you expand on the details on that because of this abuse of the water supply in California. I mean, right now, I think they're hopefully recovering, but I know for many years they were under a drought. I believe it, it has started to rain again. So it may not be as bad, but they're probably still below where they should be. Yeah, they had a record drought for many years and are always at risk of another one, even though right now uh, things are a little better. But many of those high-value crops are, are uh, irrigated, and that irrigation water is heavily subsidized by taxpayers. So farmers get to pay well below market rates, not just for the water, but the electricity to pump the water. And much of that water ends up being used to grow crops and is even in the crop itself that gets shipped to other parts of the country, other parts of the world. So uh, these desert areas are actually you know, shipping water all over the country because of a system that makes it profitable, profitable for them to do that. Yeah, it's just sad that this is allowed to, to exist. But I think the more awareness and attention that is brought to that, the more likely people are to uh, object to that and hopefully create a challenge to the continued uh, implementation of that strategy. Now, let's talk a little bit about Monsanto, which many of our viewers have likely heard of before, but it's useful to reinforce their evilness. <laughs> they truly are. You know, they filed over well over 100 lawsuits against farmers for the ridiculous assertion that they were violating their patent on their seeds when, all, yes, they did have seeds containing their patented genes growing in the field, but that was because their damn plants were spread by the wind and contaminated their fields when the, the, the true litigation should have been against Monsanto. And, uh, you know, I guess they also employ uh, uh, anonymous hotlines so that the neighbors can report in on their farmers. So why don't you discuss more about this disgusting practice of Monsanto? Yeah, uh, Monsanto and other big seed firms like Monsanto have really benefited from uh, restrictions on seeds that have just increased over time. Um, we've gone from patent-like protections to full patents on seeds, so farmers legally cannot save and replant these seeds. Uh, there have been farmers who've gone to their local grain elevator, purchased seeds, um, and planted them, um, and they've been sued by Monsanto, um, cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court. So, um, and then, you know, Monsanto is using the very strong intellectual property protections on seeds in the U.S. and trying to extend that model all, all over the world. So, so with uh, trade agreements, they're forcing other countries to uh, change their laws to protect companies like Monsanto rather than allowing farmers to save and replant seeds. And you know, in the U.S., some farmers have even gone to prison for saving seeds, uh, not to mention the, the millions of dollars in Which fines. Which is a criminal in itself. I mean, it's just yeah. shocking that they can get away with this. But uh, the public awareness of this continues to increase. Uh, the perception of the damage and danger of glyphosate is enhanced. And in California, they recently passed the requirement to put a poison label on glyphosate, which, which is a massively important first step. So I think that the writing is on the wall that there's going to be an eventual uh, decrease in their market share. It's not going to continue. It can't continue to go up. So, uh, you know, and, and most of those seeds are patented for protection against destruction by glyphosate. So they're going to come up with other deadly toxic chemicals, potentially even worse than glyphosate. And that's probably in process right now. So do you believe that's their, their same strategy or think they're going to try something different? I mean, they've got a lot of revenue. They've been around for over a century. They've got, I think it's over a $100 billion company. So they got a, money, a lot of money to play with and invest. And obviously, they've bought some companies. So what do you think their new strategy is going to be? Well, it depends on if they're acquired by Bayer, um, but that will give them you know, even more political influence. And 
One in oh, Monsanto. I, I just remember who Bear was. It's I.G. Farben. Mm-hmm. That's who they were in Germany because that I think that was a recent conversion to their name because they had like the Monsanto had to do a name play trick so that the people didn't continue <laughs> to associate with them. Yeah, one of the keys to Monsanto's um, success has been how aggressive they have been. Um, you know, to their detriment possibly in the EU, they were so aggressive in trying to uh, influence the political system. Uh, kind of underestimated the pushback they would get, and so. Most uh, genetically engineered crops are not allowed in the EU right now, uh, where it's very different in the U.S. But uh, that aggressiveness um, means is that, that is it is it actually a restriction for planting them, or is it just that they have to? Is it more of a corporate decision not to grow them because they're required to label them in the in Europe, where they were not required to label in the U.S. Um, there are a few varieties that are allowed, um, but. It, there's, you know, some depending on different countries in the EU have um, have different regulations. So there are parts of the EU where it's allowed, but um, a key has been consumer resistance. There, there's really no market uh, for those products in the EU except for animal feed, where and that's where it's all going there. But yes, um, yeah, so yeah, I think Monsanto. You know, like you mentioned, they're already developing. You know, other chemicals, you know, resistance to other chemicals in their seeds. So there's one called dicamba, which is already causing a lot of problems in the southeast and southern states because uh, it just destroys crops that are not resistant to it. Uh, it, it, you know, so it's getting onto neighboring fields and leading to a lot of disputes between neighbors, even though it's not allowed to, to be used legally right now. Yeah, and Monsanto insisted that it was biologically impossible to become resistant to glyphosate. And yet we have, I don't know the latest figures, it's either 10 or 60 million acres of super weeds that are resistant to glyphosate that you essentially cannot destroy without some other uh, combination of of highly toxic pesticides. Mm -hmm. So it's just extraordinary they get away with this. They just lie outright and there's no penalty for it. I mean, that is just incredible. I mean, even in the restaurant industry that there are no people don't realize that your restaurant could just say anything about that food, call it organic. No one's going to go in there and test it. They could call it something that is not there's not even that they're serving you. And there's no penalty, none. And there's no one enforcing honesty on that menu. Yeah, I mean, Monsanto is a classic example of the revolving door between government industry. There are people who just go back and forth between Monsanto and the agencies that are supposed to be regulating that firm. Well, I don't think we talked about the distribution uh, because that's sort of a mysterious behind the scenes component that virtually very few people are aware of. But, you know, these products are made by a manufacturer, someone who takes the raw materials and puts it into a box. And I'm not a big fan of processed foods. I'm a big fan of real foods, you know, preparing your own foods from the raw materials yourself. When you delegate that responsibility to another company, even a well-intentioned company, A, you've got the issues that we just discussed, that that company has been been, uh, challenged ethically and morally and is not selling you the stuff that they that you thought they were, but even if they were, it's still processed. And when you process foods, you you devalue the biological value of it. So, you know, so in some ways, the solution is what we discussed earlier: is preparing your own food from scratch, and then you bypass all this garbage. But for those who are still choosing to eat processed foods, they are manufactured and stored so that they can hang around for a while and then they're distributed. So why don't you address that distribution system? Because that's really uh, an interesting story. Yeah, it's a tough business to be in because, um, you know, it's so complicated. You're getting things from point A to point B, sometimes with refrigeration. Um, So we had a... uh, cooperative distribution system in the 1980s. We had um, dozens of cooperatively owned distributors across the U.S. that distributed organic and natural foods. But as the industry grew, they couldn't keep up. They didn't have the the capital to buy more trucks and warehouses and and so on. So uh, a company called United Natural Foods swooped in and, and acquired the two largest remaining cooperative distributors back in 2002. 
they're now publicly traded. Uh, the their main customer is Whole Foods. Um, you know, for for broader the, the broader national distribution of foods, there's uh, um, Cisco. So just about any restaurant you go to, you will see a Cisco truck. And so this well, is one of the bright. I think they're airplane foods too, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. They distribute um, not just food, but um, you know all kinds of things that restaurants and hotels and and cafeterias need. Um, and they have one major competitor, U.S. Foods. And at the time I wrote the book, they were planning to acquire U.S. Foods, meaning all of these people who pitted them against each other to get better deals uh, weren't going to have that option. So. <laughs> It's one of those things that uh, I wasn't expecting, but it was so clear that there were only two firms of that scale that uh, the U.S. government actually undid that acquisition. And so there, there are still two, although they're, they both continue to acquire a number of other smaller distributors. Oh, that's across good. The so, so they didn't merge and the government right. actually did what they were supposed to, probably because they weren't large enough and didn't have a, a, a successful lobbying effort to manipulate the federal regulatory agencies like like the bigger companies do. Yeah, particularly compared to some of these big uh, restaurants that they were supplying yeah. who saw a real problem with that. Yeah, well, that's good. It's good to hear there is some good news. So there is other good news. You end the book with some useful strategies that you can uh, resources that you can use to identify these hidden issues to see if, in fact, there's a large corporate parent who's uh, has malicious, maybe not intentionally, but nevertheless, uh, essentially, what is the the back not the background, but uh, what is happening? Malicious intent to provide you with high quality food. So, why don't you discuss those resources? Yeah, there are a couple of websites or apps. One is called Good Guide, G-O-O-D Guide.com. And that's that started at UC Berkeley. Uh, and they have a database of tens of thousands of products. So you can take a picture of a barcode or type in the product name and actually get a score for environmental and social and health compared to other products in that category. Uh, and if you scroll down, you can find some ownership information and see who you're really supporting. Um, it's really hard to stay up to date on that, though. There's another one called Bycott, B-U-Y-C-O-T-T dot org. Is that an app or a website? Yeah, it, yeah, it's both a web, a website and an app. Is that so the can, same for Good Guy too? Yeah, yeah, they're both they both have apps and allow you to, uh, in the case of Bycott, find out if people are boycotting that organization or encouraging people to support that organization. Uh, and I found their ownership information to be a little little better than good guides. Yeah, and these boycotts are successful. I believe there was one uh, started by the Organic Consumers Association who gets Cheerios for, I forget the specifics, but essentially it resulted in them making a big change and actually eliminating GMO grains from their products. Yeah, and there are a lot of examples, even not even going as far as a, a boycott, uh, just raising awareness of these issues, things like um, artificial dyes and foods. A number of firms have, have dropped those in certain categories. Um, hydrogenated oils, just the fact that the government started requiring labeling led many firms well, to the find trans, alternatives. The trans fat is actually was banned, was implemented, and largely as a result of Dr. Fred Kumaro, who had just passed recently at the age of 102, but uh, through some litigation that he initiated, uh, I'm not sure when it's enacted, uh, but I think it's 2018, if I'm not mistaken. Still not enforced yet, but you know that the, the writing's on the wall for trans fats. But that's not necessarily good news because these companies, yeah, they'll get the trans fat out, but then they'll put some other perniciously distorted, right. treated, chemically synthesized fat that's even worse, like cyclic aldehyde. So, you know, don't don't cheer up. The, but the key is simple. Eat real food that's not processed, ideally made by you or someone you love. That's the answer. Yeah. So, we, yeah, and, and and we've seen more and more um, uh, retailers and restaurants uh, increasing the number of items on their ban lists. Uh, like Whole Foods, they have over a hundred items that are not allowed in their stores. Um, people are reducing the number of ingredients because of um, awareness of. Uh, People like Michael Pollan saying, if it has more than five ingredients, don't eat it. So um, we're seeing some changes, but 
Um, most of these are not threatening the, the power of these big corporations, and that's that's why it's up to us to find out who we're really supporting. So what, in your best case ideal world scenario, what do you think that would be? To make a change here of all the the items that we discussed, which are significant, and these are the behind-the-scenes strategies that I opened up with that many people were not aware of. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned people eating less processed foods. Um, that's really key because if you do that, it's likely you're not going to be supporting a big corporation, particularly if you buy it locally. Uh, but if we all overnight started eating more or less processed foods, there's not the supply to meet that right now. So we need to you know, really start shifting people to um, avoiding those big firms, these 10 firms that control one-third of food and beverage sales in the U.S., um, and to really be willing to spend more in some cases um, if it means getting a higher quality product or using less of it and and supporting smaller and local and independent firms. Yes. So I think many of us fail to appreciate the power that we have individually. Yes, we can vote. Uh, and I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't. But that's a limited effectiveness because the system's so rigged, unless you're local. But on a larger scale, you know, even for your senator or your congressman, it's kind of a challenge. But, you know, you still need to participate in the process. But you can vote economically, which is probably the most important vote you can cast. And, and it, it, we, I have seen it in the short time we've been involved in this movement is that it makes a radical difference. You can shift the behavior of these corporations because, as we mentioned earlier, they're investor controlled. The investors want to profit. And if their profits are, are, there, are going down, then they need to respond to the public pressure. So you can control it. If we get enough of you people interested to do that and vote with your pocketbooks, make these changes, you're going to see the, them respond. You know, they can, t- they can have all these elaborate systems set up and have and control all of the federal regulatory agencies. But if you're not buying it, it doesn't matter. It matters for not. Now, there are some stupid people and there are some ignorant people who could care less. I mean, obviously we have lots of people addicted to hardcore drugs and are smoking and you know, could care steadily. But still, you know, if you get a significant percentage of people who are motivated about their health to make these changes, these corporations will change. Yeah, and it's surprising just how few it, it, it takes. I mean, with the example of craft beer, um, mm-hmm. just a small percentage of people seeking out craft beer instead of macro brews. And that's not craft with a K, that's craft with a C. <laughs> it's not craft foods, which obviously is a player in this, what we're talking about. Because <laughs> <laughs> who knows, you know, craft might, they could, they've got enough buying power, they could, they could make their own beer. Maybe buy one of those big brands. I have no idea, but this is no craft with a C. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Any other points you'd like to make or emphasize or summarize with? Um, Yeah, just in terms of engaging with with the political system, uh, many of these big firms receive enormous subsidies, direct and indirect. So uh, one of the ways we can change things, not only by seeking out and supporting alternatives, is by putting pressure on the government to to end these big subsidies and, and level the playing field. Great. Well, I, that's good words of wisdom to end with. And uh, your book, again, is Concentration of Power in the Food Chain. Concentration and Power in the Food System. In the Food System. Okay. So that's what it is. And if you're interested in more of the details, they're all there. It's all really well uh met detailed and you can read up on the specifics uh but ultimately you need to vote with your pocketbook and really make the commitment to eating real food that's not processed and you can make a big difference in this whole manipulated distorted distribution of the food system from the beginning to the end so thank you for everything you're doing to bring awareness to this important issue yeah you're welcome